the lake introduces a number of characters that reappear in the rest of the books in the series. Probably most important of all, of course, is my friend John. But don't forget his famous dog, Bro. So in this chapter, Bro gets a starring role. So do some of the other animals of the Powell Lake region. But it all comes down to the big star among the critters, Bro. This chapter from Up the Lake is entitled, Critters. Living in this region, it's appropriate to own a dog. Everyone seems to have one, although that's a tough adjustment for a cat guy. But dog ownership poses complications imposed by my part-time status in Canada. So I take the only logical solution to not owning a dog. I rent one. The rental limitations include accompanied by owner. But if the owner, John, is always around anyway, that solves that. Bro is the nicest fellow you ever meet. I'm sure that all dog owners say that. So why should praise not extend to renters? Bro goes everywhere with John. No, I don't just mean everywhere in a minor sense. Bro goes everywhere, where John doesn't go. It's amazing how few exceptions are necessary. Bro goes in the truck. Bro goes in the boat. Bro goes in his comfy box on the back of the quad. Bro couldn't go on John's motorcycle, one of those exceptions, which explains why there is no more motorcycle. Bro is a bit rotund, heavy, chunky, stocky, obese. But eating with John can do that to a guy. He has to be hoisted into his open box seat on the rear of the quad. You really can't lift Bro, but you can give him a hefty ass push to assist. Since John hikes a lot, there is an occasional delay as Bro is pushed by the rump up the last few feet of the climb to Beta Lake. The same procedure is used going up a vertical cliff ladder as Bro must confront a number two cabin to assist his owner in clearing the trail above the cabin. Bro's quad box has been redesigned several times to assure that he rides in comfort. Bro still bounces around a lot on rough trails, but he has a viewing ledge on the side of the open box so he can rest his chin in comfort as the mountain scenery goes by in less turbulent conditions. Bro loves sardines, so a gross collection of empty sardine cans decorates cabin number one, his favorite float cabin. On a fishing trip, there is no need to worry about the fish heads after the fish have been cleaned. Bro takes care of that detail too. But his most endearing characteristic is his greeting for absolutely every human being he knows. He runs around in circles like a madman the moment he sees you. Maybe you have some sardines. This dog lives on docks throughout the Sunshine Coast, or so it seems. Bull rides are not his favorite thing, but living with John makes this mode of transportation a constant necessity. Docks, on the other hand, are one of his favorite places. Every marina requires dogs to be on a leash at all times. John doesn't own leash. As soon as Bro enters the marina gate, 
he runs frantically down the dock finger to his boat. He always remembers what dock he is on and what finger holds his vessel. But as he makes that first skinning turn off the main dock, he always comes to a screeching halt, squats, and poops before continuing. John traditionally exclaims, Oh no, not again. Then John finds the dock hose to wash it off. Often Bro squats right near a hose to assist in the cleanup. One evening, traveling in John's truck on Goat, Maine, we round a bend and confront two dogs running full speed side by side in the middle of the road. John stops his truck in plenty of time, and the dogs stop too. But it catches me by surprise. John is very upset to see these dogs, and he correctly predicts that the owner's vehicle will be coming down the road behind the dogs in a few seconds. The pickup truck appears on schedule, and there is a moment of confusion while the owner tries to get the dogs off the road so we can proceed. This is a common practice, running dogs for exercise on forest roads, following them or leading them in your vehicle. But forest roads have a lot of blind curves. Bro was not John's first dog. Before Brody, there was Cody, who died under the wheels of John's own truck. I know John well enough to imagine his self-torture. Those memories come back to him that evening on Goat, Maine. Mountain bikes are aboard my bow rider as John, Bro, and I plow north towards Olson's Landing. The bikes fit in my boot easily with plenty of room for Bro and me to relax in the sun-drenched bow while John drives. The three-mile climb to Olson's Lake, officially designated as Olson Lake, from the logging dock is a lot easier with bikes than on foot, but it's still near torture. The climb to the mountain lake is gradual but persistent. Bro keeps up with us, panting heavily as we pedal progressively slower in the uphill push. Along the way, there is considerable evidence of bear activity, including trampled salmonberry bushes along the side of the logging road. Our stay at Olson's Lake is brief, but long enough for lunch and an almost nap as John and I rest flat on our backs on a log near the shore. It's a clear day and the high-altitude sun radiates into us. As we catnap, bro splashes for frogs at the lake's edge. The return trip is a joy, gravity making this choice of transportation finally worth the effort. Bro isn't a fast runner downhill on a rocky road, but the bikes handle it fine. I ride ahead of John, who is keeping a slower pace with Bro, and I am traveling just a little faster than justified for the conditions. In a few minutes, I am well out in front, enjoying the opportunity of being momentarily alone in the forest. As I round the corner, a black bear cub stands on the left side of the road, transfixed by the sight of a human on a bicycle. It is probably the first person he has ever seen, and what a sight I must be on this nearly out of control vehicle now breaking hard in a cloud of dust. The cub is as cute as they come, and the bear hesitates a moment before bounding across the road in front of me. I'm still focused on the cub as it enters the small clearing on the other side of the road. Nature has provided me the perfect view in a forest cluttered almost everywhere by trees and shrubs, but not here. What luck. I am perched on my bike, and nearly the exact spot where the cub has crossed the road. 
So now the cub is on one side of the road. I am in the center of the road, and wherever you find a cub, they say, you can expect mama bear to be close at hand. And never, they say, separate a cub from its mother. Mama appears immediately to my left, thrashing the bushes at the shoulder of the road, staring at me or maybe staring at her cub on the other side of me. It is a very intense stare. Then I hear bro. I don't know how bro caught up with me so fast. It must be his nose for bears because he is now furiously barking his way down the incline and it's obviously bark, bark, bark right around the corner. When he rounds the bend, he is traveling at a speed I've never seen his chubby body muster previously. Mama doesn't hesitate an instant longer. She accelerates across the road, missing me by only a few feet. The cub isn't very pleased about bro either. The small bear scoots up the nearest tree and Mama claws her way up behind her cub. The cub stops about 15 feet up the tree and Mama bear stops within swiping distance of the ground. She immediately has something to swipe at. Bro barks himself into a fit, jumping at the base of the tree, leaping nearly vertically, trying to attack the bear. This is obviously not a healthy approach to the situation. Finally, John comes around the corner, pedaling frantically. He is yelling at Bro and now focuses his attention on the tree. Bro actually listens to the voice of reason, hesitantly and just a little, and begins his retreat from the tree, still barking his full head off. Mom and, and the cub use the retreat as an opportunity to quickly leap down the tree. I remember them as jumping rather than shimming down, and they disappear quickly into the forest. Nice bear hunting, bro. You're lucky you're still alive. Of course, I do wonder what would have happened to me if bro had not appeared on the scene. On my first visit to Powell River, I go to the Visitor Info Center for some hiking maps. The helpful girl behind the counter points out some particularly scenic trails, but she notes that a tourist reported a bear on one of the local trails the previous day. That is enough for me. That trail will be avoided and is. But thinking back, I now recognize that there are lots of bear sightings every day, but only tourists report them. Bears are a common part of the environment, and seldom do incidents involve injuries to humans. Black bears are the standard species in the region. They are at least as afraid of us as we are of them. Generally, a black bear can be expected to retreat from human contact as quickly as it can. One of the best defenses is noise. So you'll find me thrashing through the trails when I am alone. When I am with John, I have a stupid sense of protection that is probably unjustified. John, and bro, would lose in a wrestling match with a bear. I also feel that it is wise to keep a knife handy, so I keep mine poised in my pocket. It isn't anything more than a large pocket knife, but I feel confident that a knife would be nice to have if something really bad happened, as on the road from Olson's Lake. Since I don't carry a firearm, a knife thrust in the face of a bear might be enough to scare him off. Yes, you're right. It might also totally piss him off. And that isn't a good thing. I guess we each have to decide what feels best. For me, having a knife in my pocket 
and hiking alone gives me a sense of confidence. I'm constantly amazed at the minimal wildlife that reveals itself near Powell Lake. The shores are steep, but even birds seem to be few in number for such a plethora of forest vegetation. There are some ducks, Canadian geese, and two loons, typically found in pairs and probably not the same ones each year, that make hole in the wall their home. The haunting call of the loon is unmistakable, but is also difficult to interpret. The call seems to spell distress, but often it occurs while an inseparable couple cruise the surface of the lake in close formation. And sometimes a cry occurs when one of the loons is, for a brief period, alone. The standard two-ship floating formation of loons is generally in trail, with a spacing of about 10 feet. When one goes underwater for a fish, the other usually follows. They reappear in nearly the same formation. I notice that a brief dive, or just sticking their long necks underwater, is sometimes the precursor to an extended underwater disappearance. When they go under on their long dives, the launch downward is quick. They sometimes travel a long way underwater and resurface with a gentle plop to resume their floating journey as if they don't even need to catch their breath. One overcast calm day in the hole, I watched two loons make their customary precursor dip, followed by the expected extended dive. I decide to time them while they are down and watch how close to the dive point they resurface. After five minutes, I begin to worry. And after 10 minutes, I figure they are playing a trick on me. For the rest of the afternoon, I continue to keep an eye on the waters of the hole. It would be possible for the loons to resurface without hearing them, even on such a calm day, since they return to the surface with so little fanfare. I hear a distant, mournful cry of a loon through the trees and hills that lead to Chippewa Bay. That bay is several miles away, so it could not be the same loons, since it is hard to miss the clumsy takeoff of these birds. I don't see my loons until hours later in the back bay of number two, directly across from my float cabin. Maybe their strategy was to dive out of sight under number two's breakwater logs, just to trick me. Loons take a lot of runway to get airborne. Some sources say loons cannot muster a takeoff without at least a little wind. Their takeoff involves frantic flapping of their wings close to the water's surface. As they accelerate, they drag their landing gear as they skip and slap across the water. Their wingtips seem to touch the water for the first 50 feet. Their landing is a noisy, water-roiling plop. But most of the time, they just paddle around, never seeming fearful of humans, but not seeking human contact either. There is more than one local family of geese who have adopted the float cabin cafe circuit. The loons keep their distance without concern for the level of human activity on the nearby floats. In addition to the loons and flocks of ducks and geese just passing through, hordes of swallows appear on sunny afternoons on the edge of the cliffs. Bats dart around my cabin at the end of twilight, seeking flying insects missed by the swallows. Visible ground animals are limited to a few squirrels and garter snakes. 
we briefly adopt a small snake named Buster, who suns himself on our transition float. He disappears after our noisy human activities on the float become disruptive to the sun baths. Buddy Lady reappears, sunning himself on the garden float. He apparently changes his address while the garden is tied to the transition float for watering. Snakes are certainly not my favorite critter, but I have finally become more accepting of them. Supposedly, there are no poisonous snakes in British Columbia. I keep asking John about this, and the answer is always the same. But I notice he becomes very upset when Bro, perpetually on snake and frog alert, finds a snake. I'm not convinced that it is only because Bro tends to tear snakes apart. Maybe it is because even John is not convinced that all BC snakes are harmless. There is little evidence of land life on the shores of the lake, although I am sure it is plentiful but hidden. I sometimes linger against the cliffs of Goat Island while fishing, waiting for some sign of life to appear. I might hear the chirping of a few birds in the woods. Even that is not common. But land animals are almost never seen near the shore. Critters seem to be missing out on a lush forest habitat, and that has always been a mystery to me. What better life could there be for a critter than to call Goat Island home? What is visible on the surface is not necessarily what is underneath. After watching Goat from the sidelines for three years, I finally venture more than the brief distance I climbed one day about the outlet of a burbling creek. I had tied my kayak to a tree and ventured several hundred feet up the creek before turning back in the thick vegetation and ever-increasing slope. To properly explore Goat, John and I ride 100cc motorcycles over the numerous logging roads, entering at the Clover Lake logging dock, we discover a wealth of animals. During this ride, we come across three bears, two cubs, and their mother. They are waiting for us in the road as we round a bend and promptly scoot to the nearest tree. Both cubs, so small, so cute, shimmy up the tree in succession, with the mother standing guard at the base. We turn off our motorcycle engines and wait. All three bears stare at us intently for several minutes, and then the cubs slowly slide down the tree. As soon as they hit the ground, an imagined noise frightens them again, because they immediately scoot up the tree right next to the one they have just exited. Once again, mom stands guard at the base until the cubs are ready to come down. Then they promptly disappear into the forest. We also meet two deer during this ride similarly standing in the middle of the logging road. Critters of size aren't stupid. Why flog through the underbrush when humans have constructed these clear paths? We stop our motorcycles as quickly as possible, turning off our engines, but the noise of the small motorcycles has spooked the doe and fawn in different ways. The mother immediately leaps off the road and quickly climbs a steep slope to our right. In seconds, she is out of sight. But the fawn remains fixated on us, standing in position and then slowly, in a shuffle step, stumbles down the road away from us. The fawn is positioned partly sideways as it walks clumsily, eyes focused on us. The farther the 
fallen walks, the more it is separated from its mother. We walk our bikes away from the fawn, hoping it will not get too far from the doe. As we approach a corner in the road, I see the fawn leap off the side of the road, headed in the direction of the mother. You never know for sure about things like this, but it is best to be confident in the power of nature. I'm sure this reunion was quick and emotional. Although it is fun to see these deer on boat, I've observed more deer in town than outside of it. It is not uncommon to see deer at the airport or hopping in and out of the woods near John's house on the main street in town. But if I were a deer, I'd move from town as soon as possible and take up residence on magnificent Goat Island. It's simply a more deer-like postal address. As the author of the Up the Lake series, I thank you for listening to this podcast. And I invite you to uh, check out the recently overhauled Power River Books website at www.powriverbooks.com.